will be in the book of Zechariah, the second to last book of the Old Testament, but Malachi is rather small, so I'm guessing probably three to five pages in most of your Bibles from Matthew. Um, Zechariah chapter 14, and this morning we'll be reading the final section of the final section of this great book that we've been in now for nearly 30 weeks. After this morning, we'll have one more week of review going over the entire book. I'm not sure when that will be because I'm not sure when um, baby Kidder is coming, sometime soon. Um, you can pray for my wife in that regard. But we'll, we'll be taking one more sort of bird's eye overview of Zechariah, but today we finish the text of this letter. I'd like to begin by reading um, verse 9 to the end of chapter 14. Zechariah 14, verse 9 till 20. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. The whole land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. For, but Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress, and it shall be inhabited. For there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. And Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall upon them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of one shall be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected gold, silver, and garments in great abundance." And a plague like this shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. There shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, Holy to the Lord. The pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of their sacrifices in them, and there shall be no longer a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Let's pray. Lord God, as we study your word and we look at the end of the history of this planet, the end of... of all things as it draws near, your righteous rule on the earth. We just pray that you would instruct us and open our eyes to see the wonderful things that are in your word, that we would be profited by it, and that you would be glorified in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're like me, I'm sure you often wonder as you read the headlines what what this world is coming to. Um, This past few weeks, there's been an attempt to broker some sort of deal with Iran over, over nuclear, this nuclear program. We'll hear about other countries popping up in the news, other potential threats to world peace. We live in an uncertain time, an uncertain age. And yet I find great confidence in reading God's word to know how human history will end. And it ends with a king and a kingdom. It doesn't end with democracy. It doesn't end with a republic or an oligarchy. It ends with a king and a kingdom, a righteous king and a righteous kingdom. That is the end to which the the history of this planet is headed. And whatever detours, whatever sidesteps along the way, whatever wars and tumults, this is where it will come together. This is how our history will end. In, In Zechariah chapter 14, we are looking at the events surrounding immediately before and immediately after the second coming of Christ. Last week we saw that in verse 4, as the nations have gathered around Jerusalem, all the nations of the world, a global confederacy, seeming to have won, 
entered the city, dividing the spoil. In that dire last moment, the Lord goes out to fight, verse 3. And on that day, his feet shall stand to the Mount of Olives. The Lord Jesus returns, touching down exactly from where he took off. And what, what the text goes on to say is it sort of skips over the battle, and it skips over the conflict to the Lord ruling. In verse 9, we end up with the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the Lord will be one in his name, one. And, and this week, in our final passage from this text, we're to look at the battle, we're going to look at the change in, in geography, we're going to look at this king and this kingdom. And it is wonderful and it is glorious. So let's begin verses 10 to 11. The first thing we see is the transformation of the king's land. And that's what we're looking at is a king and a kingdom. And what we're going to see is how the king deals with his land, his, his terrain, his throne. The whole land, verse 10, shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site. From the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate to the corner gate, from the tower of Hananel to the king's winepress, and it shall be inhabited, for there shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. You see, what the scriptures have told us, the God's covenant promises to David, is that David would never lack a man for the throne, and David's throne is in Jerusalem. So what we're looking at is the capital city of the king's kingdom, the city of Jerusalem. And what happens is the land is transformed in preparation for the king, in preparation for his rule. What, what is translated in the ESV, the land will be turned into a plain, would be better translated, the land will be turned into the Arabah. The Arabah is that land that is, um, denotes the Abra or El Gahor, the largest of the plains of Judah, running from Hermon to the Red Sea and known as the deepest depression on the face of the globe. All the land will be depressed in order that Jerusalem might be elevated. You see, all the land surrounding Jerusalem will be pushed down to basically the lowest point of any plain on earth. What's left then is a city on a hill in plain sight, surrounded and, and lifted up. It's, it's, a, it's a majestic picture of this, of this royal city, the transformation of the land as, as the, the area around Jerusalem is flattened. And what we see is Jerusalem remains exalted Inhabited and secure. You see that in verse 10. Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site. Verse 11, it shall be inhabited. There shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. Now turn back from Zechariah 14 all the way to chapter 1. Because what we're getting here in chapter 14 is the final consummation and fulfillment of God's heart and his promise for his people. At the very beginning of this book, this end was spoken of. If you remember, the book begins with an opening call to repentance, and then Zechariah relates eight night visions he's had. And the first of them is of a rider on a white horse, who we identified back then as the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord, in verse 12 of chapter 1, cried out to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? against which you've been angry these 70 years. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So there's God's promise. He's angry at the nations. He has returned with compassion and love to Jerusalem. And here we see Jerusalem exalted, the royal city where the throne of the king is located, where we saw last week rivers of waters to, to irrigate. That's not the right, is it irrigate? Irrigate, thank you. To irrigate the land around will be flowing out. Transformation of the king's land. And now, after looking at the transformation of the king's land, we turn to probably the question that if we, if we were watching or reading this is in everyone's mind, well, what happens? There's a battle that shows up. Nations arise. The Lord goes out to fight, and then we don't hear anything of the battle. We just jump to the conclusion. 
Part, part of the reason for that is anyone who has any mind understands that when God fights any amount of people, who wins? God. This isn't an issue left hanging. But now, Zechariah does turn his attention in verses 12 to 15 to what happens actually when the Lord shows up to fight the combined nations of the world. Verse 12 to 15, This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets. Their tongues will rot in their mouths. And on that day, great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of another, and the hand of one will be raised against the hand of another. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected gold, silver, garments, in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beasts may be in those camps. Now, this is truly a terrible picture of utter and total destruction. God's enemies who rise up against him, no matter how great their number, no matter how unified they are. I mean, this is a global conflagration, a a global uniting of nations to attack and make war on God. The living Christ who has returned pours out a curse on them. This harmonizes perfectly with what we see in Revelation chapter 19 where, where Jesus opens his mouth and speaks. Listen to Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened. This is all speaking of the same event. Zechariah 14 and Revelation 19 are picturing the same event. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on his white horses, just just as it is here in verse 5 of chapter 14 of Zechariah. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, which is to say the words of his mouth are the weapon he uses to strike down the nations, the curse that he speaks upon them in Zechariah's nomenclature. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress, the fury, the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Lord Jesus shows up to battle the nations, and the battle is over before it begins because he speaks. We're going to close our service this this morning, not now, but when we do, by singing Martin Luther's... Okay, okay. (laughs) By singing Martin Luther's famous song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And and Martin Luther pens in that, and I want you to pay attention when we get to that, the lyric about our foe, the devil, who who is in one sense a terrifying adversary. One little word shall fell him, but that word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The word of God, the living Christ will show up. He will defeat God's enemies with the words of his mouth. God uses words to create. In Genesis 1, we are told not only that God created the heavens and the earth, but how? He didn't perform a magic rite. He didn't didn't paint a picture. He spoke. From, From the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, God's weapon of choice, his tool of power of creation and destruction is his word. And so what we see is these, these combined enemies of the king are destroyed on at least three levels. They, they really get it bad here. First, we see from the Lord, this, this terrifying plague from the Lord. I mean, just imagine decomposition and the removal of life so quickly from bodies that they are decomposing before they hit the ground. If you remember, back in chapter 12, where this this final section of the book begins, look at verse 1, how God introduces himself, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. And we concluded when we looked at that, that 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 identification for God indicates he is the God who's sovereign over the earth. He made the earth. He rules the earth. He's the God who's sovereign over the heavens. He made the heavens. He rules the heavens. And he's sovereign over man. 
So he made man and he put the spirit of man within him. And then we see as Jesus returns, him exercise that sovereignty. He shows up in the Mount of Olives and because he is the God who rules the earth, what does the earth do? It makes a wide valley at his command. The earth obeys. And then we see a little later in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 14 that the sun doesn't give its light, that the, the terrestrial order of the stars in the sky is, is abrogated, is, is paused. It's this light at night, but there's not light in the day. He is sovereign over the stars. They shine. The sun gives its light at his command. He's sovereign over the earth. He's sovereign over the heaven. And here, the plague with which he strikes these men appears to be nothing other than the removal of the life suddenly, quickly, that he has breathed into them. So much so that the body is just wither. He is sovereign over man. Life is God's gift. We wrestle sometimes, and we, we can even read passages like this and say, how could a loving God do something this terrible? God has gifted us life. The beginning of this passage makes it clear. He gives life. We, we don't give and create life. He does, and it is his to take back. It is his to remove at his will. He is God, and that is what he does here. He speaks, and this curse falls upon his enemies, and they are undone. They don't strike him. They don't attack him. He isn't wounded. He speaks, and they unlife themselves, for lack of a better term. But not only does that happen, but they're attacked and destroyed from their own hand. Look at verse 13. And on that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, so that each will seize the hand of the other, and the hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. This is sort of similar to what happened with Gideon and the Midianites. If you remember when Gideon got 300 men and they got their, their, their uh, torches in their jars and they surrounded on the hills around the Midianites and they, they smashed their jars and they blew their trumpets and they deceived the Midianites into thinking they were surrounded by a great army. And the Midianites, in their confusion, in their terror, struck each other down. Well, apparently what's happening here is as this curse is, is falling upon the people, as people are, are decomposing before they hit the ground, as that, that terrifying, you can imagine how terrifying, awful that would be. These people just want to skedaddle. They turn on each other. This global conspiracy, uniting, union, disintegrates as well as these wicked people turn on themselves, raising their fist. On that day, a great panic from the Lord shall fall upon them so they will seize the hand of another. The hand of one will be raised against the hand of the other. This is also what's spoken of back in Zechariah chapter 12. Look at verse 4. On that day, speaking of the same event, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and this rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open. I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness, striking the people with fear, this is, again, a sign of judgment from God. It was a judgment promised Israel if they were unfaithful. In Deuteronomy 28, 28, God promises Israel if they are not faithful, if they do not obey, I will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. But two chapters later, God promises Israel also that if they will be faithful, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes, which is exactly what is happening here. Remember, the order of this is that God first brings Israel to repentance and faith. He causes them to look upon the one whom they've pierced. They, they see their slain Messiah, and they turn to him, and they repent, and they get broken, and they mourn. And then as a faithful people, the Lord shows up, and he fights for them. And rather than pouring out the, the curses of the covenant that they had and are receiving for such a long time, now the covenant curses go to their enemies. Now the covenant promises are theirs. And as they are being destroyed by the Lord, being struck down by their own hand in terror, we also see that they're going to be destroyed from the tribe of Judah. This again harmonizes perfectly with what happened in chapter 12. We read in verse 14, even Judah will fight at Jerusalem and the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected gold, silver, and garments in great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, and whatever beast may be in the camps. And so what's happened, if you remember the, the ordering, is this. The, the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. The enemies come in. The enemies are despoiling them. They're dividing the spoil in their midst. Terrible atrocities are taking place. And as that happens, the people turn. They cry out to God. The Lord Jesus returns, and he not only fights the enemies, but he provides the way of escape. The, the Mount of Olives is split in two, and those remaining in the city flee as the Lord Jesus stands between them and their enemies, just like he did 
at the Exodus. We compared that last week to the Exodus where the Israelites are backed up against the water. Pharaoh's army is coming and the angel of the Lord comes and interposes himself between them, keeping the enemy at bay while the supernatural means of escape is opened and the people flee. But chapter 12 makes it clear, even while that is what happens to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, it is the inhabitants of the surrounding area of Judea who will come up and fight. Look in chapter 12, verse 5. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts their God. And on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. So the picture is the people are, are the enemies of God. These nations are, are falling under this curse of the Lord. This terrible, terrible curse is the very life energy that God has given them is withdrawn. Those that this curse has yet to spread to are, are terrified, turning on their the countrymen, turning on their confederates, hands raised against each other. And in that situation, a supernaturally empowered Judah, that those who live in the surrounding towns of Judah are gonna, are gonna just cut through like a knife, hot knife through butter. They're gonna devour to the left and to the right like a, a flame among sheaves. And that, that will be the destruction of the Lord's foes. And it's utter and it's complete. We see in verse 15, not only will the, the foes be struck down, but their, their animals, their transport. It's, it's as though the entire armies are devoted to destruction. The, the spoilers become despoiled. The looters will be looted. Those who at the beginning of 14 are dividing up the loot, we see they will be looted. The nation's... And all the wealth, verse 14, of the surrounding nations will be collected, gold, silver, garments, in great abundance. What's being done to them is what they did or would do to Jerusalem. This is, this is a picture of utter destruction. Remember, this is God's purpose. Go back to 14.2. I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. Go back to chapter 12 even more clearly. God gathers them. But he gathers them to destroy them. Verse 2 of chapter 12, Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem should be also against Judah. On that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone with all the, for all the peoples, and all who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations on earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord. And then he talks about striking them and destroying them. But jump down to verse 9 of chapter 12 for the clearest statement. On that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And of course, what God intends to do, he does. Note, note the fate of God's enemies. Utter destruction from without, from within, and from those around. Struck down and destroyed. Terrible, terrible destruction. Well, let's move on. We've seen the transformation of the king's land. We've seen what the king does to his enemies. He destroys them utterly. Now, we'll turn to a happier subject. We'll see the worship of the king's subjects, verses 16 to 19. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up again year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. Now, first we've got to explain how this works. After the battle of Armageddon, after this defeat of Israel's enemies of the Lord's enemies, there will be survivors, and some of those survivors will be people of faith. As we harmonize the accounts here of the book of Revelation, we know that an angel goes out to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. We know that 144,000 Israelites are, are empowered witnesses. We know that all over the earth, even as the nations of the world unite to fight God and his people, throughout all the world, people are coming to faith. And those survivors enter into what is called the Messianic kingdom. They enter into it alive. You can read about the judgment of the sheep and the goats in Luke and Jesus explaining how that works. And so Israel survives, but there are clearly survivors of the nations. And they enter in alive, and these are people of faith. These are people who, who heard the message and believed. And they enter into the Messianic kingdom. And what happens in that kingdom is these nations still exist in some sense. You don't know how it's going to be redivided up is they go up year after year to worship the Lord to keep the Feast of Booths. So what is this Feast of Booths that features so prominently here? We have to take a brief detour, but it's one of the three main feasts 
of the people of Israel. Turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23. And Leviticus 23 lays out for Israel the appointed feasts, special worship services, days of feasting and fasting and worship, the holy days for God's people Israel under the Mosaic law. And and the Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, um, is, is described clearly here in, we'll pick it up in verse 39 of Leviticus 23. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in all the produce in the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest. On the eighth day shall be a solemn rest. So it begins and ends, solemn rest. You shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So the Feast of Booze is, is eight days long. It begins and ends with a solemn day, and in between is, is feasting and rejoicing as a harvest celebration. But what happens is the Israelites have to go and make little booths or huts or tents or tabernacles, whatever you want to call them. And, and it's meant that they sort of live in this sort of camp for a week, maybe just in the backyard, maybe somewhere else. But they camp for a week in remembrance that Israel... In all those years in the wilderness, didn't have a home, were wandering about, and lived in tents and booths. That's what's stated here. So it's a celebratory feast. And you may be asking, that's kind of strange. Why would all the nations of the world gather? Why does this feast get singled out? Why are all the nations gathering to remember that God led Israel out of Egypt and they lived in booths? That seems kind of odd. Wouldn't they be celebrating the cross? Wouldn't they be celebrating the resurrection? Let's go a little further. Turn to Deuteronomy 16.16. There's a number of feasts in Israel, but three of them are are the high or or most sacred or important feasts. They get listed here in Deuteronomy 16.16. So important that every able-bodied Israelite was to make a pilgrimage once a year for each of these. So three times a year, every able-bodied Israelite was to go to Jerusalem to celebrate three of the central feasts. Look at verse 16 of Deuteronomy 16. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God, the place that he will choose, because when Moses wrote this, he didn't know Jerusalem was going to be the place, but he knew when they entered the land, God would choose a place, a particular place for his glory to dwell. Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God, the place that he will choose, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. So why then does this feast get singled out? Getting more precedence than Passover, which, which pictures Christ's death on the cross. Pentecost, which pictures God pouring out his spirit on man. Go a little further. Follow this thread with me a little further. We'll skip over the Nehemiah one to John 1.14. I'll give you my short answer for why I believe this of those three key feasts is picked and why it is the nation's wood delight to gather and worship God and keep this feast. Here's my short answer. This feast of those three in Deuteronomy 16, 16, is the only one that is still yet forward-looking. It's the only feast that still anticipates a greater fulfillment. The Passover looks to and pictures, anticipates the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. And we celebrate that every Lord's Day. We celebrate that in song, but we're looking backwards. We're not looking forward expecting another Savior. We're not looking forward expecting another sacrifice. As Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Likewise, in Acts chapter 2, the ultimate fulfillment of Pentecost takes place as God pours out his spirit on man, the new covenant gift of the Holy Spirit fulfilled. We look backwards to that. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, still looks forward. Because even though it's in commemoration 
of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, it anticipates some very, very important things. One of which is the incarnation of the Son of God. Look at verse 114. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, your Bibles may have a footnote there because literally what the Greek says is the Word became flesh and tabernacled. He pitched his tent among us. You see, God taught Israel a lesson as they lived in an uncomfortable place, as they lived in the wilderness. This was to anticipate what God would do with his own son, sending him to this earth as he tabernacles, as he leaves his home, and he spends it with us. Well, okay, you say then perhaps that's true, but doesn't that then mean this feast is fulfilled? No, not at all. Turn now to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21. So the, the Feast of Booths commemorates the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. It anticipates God's own son leaving his home, dwelling in a tent for a time, as it were, with us. And ultimately, its final fulfillment will be seen in Revelation chapter 21. Not in the kingdom, which is what we're at now. We're looking at the, the millennial kingdom, but now we have the new heavens and the new earth. Look at 21.1, just to set the place in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So we are now into the eternal state. And only in the eternal state do we read these remarkable words. Let's keep reading. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. And again, my Bible has a footnote here that a literal rendering of the dwelling place of God is with man is the tabernacle of God is with man. The Feast of Booths ultimately pictures this eternal state, this perfect, this perfect peace between God and man. There's no longer a temple. Look down a little further in verse 22 of this chapter. I saw no temple in the city, for the t- its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, ultimately anticipates this fulfillment. It's the only feast forward looking still yet. And so the nations who are at peace, who are worshiping the living God, we're back in Zechariah now. As much as they are being ruled by the living Christ, as much as There is peace and justice on earth. They are still looking, they're still yearning for this perfect peace with God. Because we're going to see there's still sin, there's still rebellion. Global, multinational worship celebrating the Feast of Booths. We also notice it's 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 an enforced worship. It's tempting for us nowadays to say, well, I'm going to worship God this way. I'm going to worship God that way. Notice, God has prescribed how the nations will worship him, and and he's not allowing alterations. He's not allowing innovations. We're going to celebrate the Feast of Booths this way. No, you come up to Jerusalem and participate in the worship, or you get a curse. God will be king, but there will not be religious freedom. There will not be religious freedom in the kingdom. There will be one God, and his name will be one. And for those who will not worship him, there will be judgment. You see that very plainly. If any of the families, verse 17, of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves on them, there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. The reason I think Egypt is singled out is because Egypt of all nations might think, well, you can hold the rain back, that's fine. We got the Nile. Well, you also have the plague. The, the point here is this. As, as the book of Revelation states, as Psalm 2 states, the Christ will rule the nations with a rod of iron. We live in a day where God invites us to worship him. The gospel goes out and calls on us to worship God. There's coming a day where God will require it 
It will no longer be voluntary. It will no longer be optional. As we read in Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue confess, even if some of those knees are broken. They will bow. God will receive worship. Finally, we see the holiness of the king's people. Verse 20 and 21. On that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the pots and the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar, and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all their sacrifice may come and take of them and boil meat of the sacrifice in them. There shall be no longer a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Now, this may all, again, seem strange to you. What the... There's only really two points here of significance. The first is now, in this future kingdom, there will no longer be a distinction between sacred and secular. There will no longer be a distinction between sacred and secular. The Mosaic law gave instance after instance after instance of the clean and the unclean, the sacred and the secular. Under the law of Moses, there were things that were clean, there were things that were unclean, there were things that were sacred, there were things that were not sacred. And in Leviticus 10.10, God instructs the priest saying, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. So according to the Mosaic law, there are clean things or unclean things. And here is a state where the kingdom... And the king and his people are so holy that everything is clean. Everything is set apart for God. That, that's the picture here. If you read the book of Leviticus, not just any pot will do for worship in the temple because not every pot is holy. Here, every aspect of life is holy. Whether it's the, the bells on your horses, whether it's the pot in your house, everything is holy. Everything is for the Lord on that day. There is no clean or unclean distinction. This is a remarkable statement that these people will be so purified and so single-mindedly in their devotion to God that all aspects of their life will be set apart for him. All aspects of their life will be holy. The other thing we see here is finally Israel will be fulfilling its national calling. Now turn back to Exodus 19. And God's purpose for Israel. We can, this can be so overshadowed by the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, we get the Ten Commandments. And we recognize that as Israel enters into a covenant with God, the Ten Commandments play a major role in how they relate with God. But I want you to see in Exodus 19 what the Ten Commandments themselves even rest upon. God's purpose for Israel. God's purpose in calling them and entering into a covenant with them. God's purpose in, in making them his son. Exodus 19, we'll start in verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the, pe- speak to the people of Israel. What's God's design for Israel? To be his treasured possession, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does that mean, kingdom of priests? Turn back to Zechariah um, as, as we try to think through what that means. Turn to Zechariah 8. Well, I've talked to you before. The difference between a priest and a prophet is this. Both the priest and the prophet stand between God and men. The prophet, like Moses coming down from the mountain, intermediates himself between God and men, speaking to men for God. So God gives Moses a message, or God gives Nathan a message, and Moses, Nathan, whoever the prophet is, goes to the audience and speaks for God. He'll frequently say things like, thus says the Lord, and he represents God to men. That's that's a prophetic function, speaking to men for God. The priest is the opposite. The priest stands between God and men for men. The priests offer sacrifices to God on his altar, on behalf of the people. Jesus Christ, our high priest, ever lives now to intercede for us before the very throne of God, functioning a priestly function. You you pray for, you, you lift up sacrifices for, you intermediate and minister on behalf of the people. And God is calling Israel to be a nation of priests. What's that mean? It means a nation mediating the knowledge of God to the nations which is exactly what we see hinted at in Zechariah 8. Look at the end of Zechariah chapter 8, verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 
People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and many strong nations shall come and seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you. We have heard that God is with you. See, the whole world will be worshiping the Lord and Israel and the Jews will be playing that priestly function in facilitating that worship. What God originally intended as far back as Exodus 19, before the Ten Commandments, before the law, before the priestly code, you will be, he says to them, a nation and a kingdom of priests. And finally, here they are that. They largely failed that role. They, they became proud and looked down on the Gentiles, the uncircumcised, with contempt now finally, the end of Zechariah, the end of human history, here is Israel being that kingdom of priests. Quickly, I want to draw three points of application. Why does this matter? So what? Well, last week we looked primarily at the points, God wins, be courageous, endure suffering. This week, three points only. The first, what, what do we make of this? Point number one, we must decide whom we will worship and serve. We must decide whom we will worship and serve. What's painfully obvious about the end of human history is at the end of the day, it all boils down to one of two types of people. There are those who gladly and willingly worship the Lord of hosts, and there are those who are utterly destroyed. There is no Switzerland here, no third neutral party. There are the enemies of God destroyed thoroughly from without, from within, and from around. There are those who worship the living God. That's it. And all of human history and every person you know will ultimately resolve themselves into one of those two camps. There's the kingdom of darkness. There's the kingdom of light. There is no escaping this. We may view ourselves on some sort of continuum. We may view ourselves as somewhere in between things. At the end of the day, the end of your day, this will be resolved with utter and total finality. Turn, turn to Luke 9. Jesus speaks about this in the, in the most stark and black and white terms. We would do well to learn from this. We would do well to learn from this. Luke 9. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? That's the question, right? The entire world disagrees with God in Zechariah 14. The entire world thinks God's wrong. The entire world is opposed to him. And the question is, do we cast our lot with God? Will we worship and serve God or will we follow our own wisdom? Don't be surprised that this world offers you plenty of other options. Note also that there aren't multiple ways of worshiping God. This text not only shows us there are two groups, those who worship God and those who are destroyed, but those who worship God do it the way God has prescribed. So there's no room for, well, I, I worship the Lord, I just do it my own way. I, 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 I've, you know, I deal with God on my own terms. You've got your way, that's wonderful. No, there are those, let's make it simpler. There are those who keep the Feast of Booths and those who rot while they stand. There are those who worship God according to his instruction, according to the way he says he will be worshipped, and there are those who are destroyed. Now, of course, that same dilemma, that same split path is, is, is available today. Because there are those who know Jesus Christ by faith. There are those who, who worship the living God, who have come. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there were those who will suffer the wrath of God. It's not popular nowadays to speak about God's wrath. We get uncomfortable with pictures like this in Zechariah of a, a vengeful God, a God pouring out wrath, a God who destroys his enemies. But the scripture is emphatic on this point. Jesus himself is emphatic on this point. No one spoke more plainly, more clearly of the coming judgment than the Lord Jesus himself. Warning people, flee the wrath to come. 
There is a way of escape. There is a gospel that God has sent his son who died on a cross, bore our sins on his back, the one who was pierced for their transgressions that they saw earlier. God has offered forgiveness to anyone who turned, anyone who trusts. Jesus here is saying, look, come after me. Pick up your cross. Follow me. You'll, you'll save your life by losing it. Or you can cling on tightly to your life and lose it. Those are your options. Who will you worship? Who will you serve? Who will be the God of your life? You, your wisdom, your desires, your heart. What seems good to you? Are you God? Or is God God? Understand, that question will be resolved clearly in each and every one of your life. If there's some ambiguity right now, that ambiguity will be resolved. One way or the other, it will be resolved. We will all ultimately be revealed to be sons of our Father, or as Jesus says in John 8, sons of the devil himself. There's the kingdom of light, there's the kingdom of darkness, there's life, there's death, there's blessing, there is the curse. There is no Switzerland, there is no third party. This is binary. Binary. If you haven't come to faith in the risen Lord, if you have not turned and trusted in Him, why, why will do so today? The offer is on the table. The pardon is there. The judgment is still being held back. But know with certainty what your fate will be if you enter into eternity as God's enemy. You will lose. You will be utterly destroyed. Point number two. We are quickly running out of time. Point number two. There is now no distinction between sacred and secular. There is now no distinction between sacred and secular. Israel had that distinction. There's coming a day where it won't. But for us, for the church, for those who live now, we have statements like 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. The risen Christ claims every area of our lives. It was tempting for us to, to be like people, C.S. Lewis has this article, Three Ways of Living, and he describes people who, who view their service to God as people paying a tax to a king or a ruler. And if you're like me, when you pay your taxes, you hope after you're done paying your taxes, you have enough money left over for the things you want, the things you need. And you recognize your obligation. If you're lawful, you pay your taxes first, and then you live off of what's rest, left. The temptation for us can be to approach God the same way. Okay, I'm a Christian. God has saved me. God requires some things of me, and I'll make sure I give them to him, but I hope after I've given God what is his, there'll be a left, leftover for me, for me to have some enjoyment, for me to have some time. If we're thinking like that, we have set up that sacred-secular dichotomy. You know, Sunday morning, that's God's time. Wednesday night, that's God's time. I help out with water. Thursday night, that's me time. Thursday night's me time. And we've got that sacred-secular dichotomy, and we, that can't be allowed there's not a single moment of your day that the risen Christ doesn't say, mine. And Paul says, whether something as menial as eating, I mean, understand that if we can eat and drink to the glory of God, the implication is we can also eat and drink to the dishonor of God, to the glory of something else. What we're called for is an active worship of God. And we don't have time to go through this, but... It'd be good for you, it'd be good for me to go through the various areas of my day and ask myself, do I really view my workplace as something devoted to God? Paul tells workers and slaves in Ephesians not to do their work as man-pleasers, but offering their service up to God. Do, I, do you view your work and your employment as something you do that's separate from worship to God? Or do you view your work in the workplace as an offering, not to please your boss, not to make him happy, but as an offering, as an aroma, as a sacrifice to God? Do you have a sacred-secular dichotomy? Or is your life offered up to the Lord? Do you view, your, say, your use of your cell phone? And now we're messing with the real stuff, aren't we? Do you view your cell phone and the things you look at and the, the texts you send and the things you say? Is this a cell phone that's devoted wholly to the Lord? Or is this the Lord gets some use of my phone, but I do too? These are questions we need to work through because the, the amazing statement, turn to 1 Peter very briefly, is that purpose that God had for Israel is directly quoted, and the church, to some sense, is fulfilling even now. Look at 1 Peter 2.9. We'll, we'll close here. I won't, I won't have time to get to my last point. 
or for our last song. But this is, this is huge. 2-9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That is the exact language of Exodus 19.6. God's purpose for Israel in calling them to Sinai, the church is now fulfilling. Oh, we're not fulfilling it as Israel will. We're not offering real sacrifices. We're not, we're not bringing nations to a real temple. But after all, the New Testament says we are the temple of God. We are serving that priestly function. We are people to be devoted wholly to the Lord. And it goes on and it says, You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's beloved. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We have this tremendous honor. And God calls on us to live lives that indicate that every area of your life, every area of my life is devoted to God. And, and as we close in prayer, we won't have time for our, our final song. I, I apologize for that. I just would encourage us to search our hearts that God would reveal to us areas that we've set aside for ourselves. Lord God, we rejoice in being made your people. Once we were not a people, but now we are your people. Once we were not your sons and daughters, but now we are your sons and daughters. Through the work of your son on the cross, now we draw near. And you've given us this ministry that we are to minister your word to the nations. And we are to live our lives holy to the Lord. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would show us those areas in our life that we have carved out for ourselves and our use only, those areas in our life that are not devoted to you, those aspects of our thinking and living that we view as ours and not yours. Lord, help us to be that light to the peoples. Help us to bring your word to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. The coffee, the donuts are downstairs. Baptism. We'll be beginning in about 15 or 20 minutes. Thank you.